Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches they never change anything.
If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education into, with, and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, uh, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.
Okay, it's uh, time for another week in my house, and no, we're not playing just only music today. Um, I forgot I got a long line list. Switch the chairs next with me. Today, it's my house. It's titled um, Curtis Wall Street Carol and Khalil Rafferty. Uh, once again, uh, we're going to um, start the music over in a couple of seconds. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, over, over. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's over. Okay. We're not going to play any more music until the last part of the, I mean, the end of the show. All right, so today's podcast is titled, this is an inspiration thing because it's Friday, we're coming up on the weekend. So um, the two stories that I want to put out here, share with you, uh, uh, one, and it, their first story, first person stories, one's about Curtis Wall Street Carroll. Here's a guy that uh, couldn't read or write went to prison and learned how to read and write in prison and got real good at picking stocks and a lot of people make money from his teachings now. So we're going to do an audio by him. And the other person was uh, on Skid Row. Skid Row was a Skid Row bum and uh, homeless, and now he's a millionaire. His name is Khalil Rafferty. So we're going to play um, – Let's see, who will we do first? Let's go to Khalil's story first. And you can look these guys up online as well. Uh, he went from homeless to Maine. This next story will either inspire you or make you hungry. Just a few years ago, the man you're about to meet was a drug addict on Skid Row. Now he's a successful businessman hobnobbing with celebrities. Here's ABC's Nick Watt with all of the juicy details. Skid Row... Los Angeles. Why are you here? We're just talking. Wow. We're here because for a year and a half, this was Khalil Rafati's home. I'm not scared of any of this stuff. Uh-huh. I can handle myself. But the smell, I'm now sweating. You know? It's bringing it back. It's bringing it back, yeah. Life is a destitute, hopeless heroin addict. Real homelessness, where your teeth are, are, are rotting out of your head and you have a, a smell on your body that is so disgusting that it, it's unbearable. And the only thing that you can do at, at that point is, is get high. That was 13 years ago. I pushed one, right, kids? Rafati now has a juice and smoothie empire, Sun Life Organics, based in Malibu. What do you guys want? Sure, I'd love one. Thank you. I'm getting a mildly culty feeling. Not in a bad way. Yeah, I'll take it. 200 employees, six stores, two more coming, a devoted celebrity clientele. Cindy Crawford, Jaden Smith, Liam Hemsworth. How did this happen? You're now a juice magnate. Pause. That face. And that face, same guy. This has got to be a hell of a story. I think the obsession and the addiction has gotten more powerful as the years have gone by, but again, in channeled into a, a positive direction. No more smack and crack. It's smoothies now. And bananas in there? All organic, right? Everything's organic. Bee pollen, chia seeds. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put some almond butter in there. We're definitely in Malibu now. You're definitely in Malibu. Yep. Smoothies. It is still a reflection of a 
slightly addictive personality. Massively addictive personality. <laughs> no, I appreciate you being polite because you're Scottish, but uh, you can just say it. I'm an addict through and through, and that's never going to change. His daily fix, now hot yoga and this stuff. That is a million-dollar smoothie. It has vegan protein powder in it, goat colostrum. That's the mother's milk from a goat when she first gives birth. We use, like, a special honey from India that is, while it's being made, the monks are chanting. And This is sounding very crazy California right now. It is, yeah. Khalil Rafati was born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. There was a lot of violence when I was a child, and there was sexual abuse. He came to California as soon as he could, did odd jobs for the likes of Elizabeth Taylor. I was able to maintain and sustain and not get into too much trouble. Stealing a little weed on the side, playing in bands, fun in the sun. Once heroin came into the picture, I didn't care. It was as if God himself came down and, and, and hugged me. There was no fear. There was no anxiety. I literally did not care. I was like, I don't care if my life goes to hell in a handbasket. A life he then tried to end after a fight with a girlfriend. I took everything I had, I put it in a spoon, I, I drew it up, and I shot it. Hoping to die? Absolutely, absolutely, hoping to die. Ultimately, I was that guy sitting at the gas station just like this, because that was all I could manage to do was just panhandle. Here, on Skid Row. It was really about moving, walking, scoring, selling, fixing. I can't believe I got out. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't get out. Rafati just wrote a book, I Forgot to Die. Why put this all down in a book? To let people know that they can change. If you truly want to, you can change. Finally, he truly wanted to. Found sobriety and juice. My friend Sean, he would bring me juiced burdock root and ginger and raw macadamia nuts when I was newly sober, and he sort of nursed me. He worked. He met Haley, erstwhile girlfriend, current business partner. Thank you for doing that. Not everybody can open a chain of juice stores to keep them clean. It's not just juices and smoothies and superfoods saved my life. It's a healthy lifestyle saved my life. Okay, but listen, L.A. is bristling with juice bars. Many fail, but not this one. And why has it worked? Because it's authentic, because it's real. Those, like, spiritual masters said... To serve is to rule. <laughs> but, but it's true. You know how excited I was to make you that smoothie? And that, that's what this is all about. I'm Nick Watt for Nightline in Los Angeles. That is very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that was, uh, you heard from himself, Khalil Rafferty was a skid row bum homeless, now millionaire, and he... He basically got wealthy by, uh, he was juicing, and he got his health back, and then he basically shares that with others at a profit now. So uh, you can read about him online, you can buy his book. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we're going to start, if I can't pull it off every day, no matter what topic, because I want to have some kind of success, you know, polar opposite thing going here on It's My House, where a person was down and out, was on rags to rip, something where we, you know, a person that was in a negative position went to a positive position. That, my goal is to have something like that on here every day, somebody different every day. Uh, and then occasionally have a, a live 
stream guest on. As a matter of fact, one guy I'm thinking about right now, this guy had cirrhosis of the liver, was expected to die. And then he changed his diet. He changed his diet. He he moved to a non-toxic environment and took up a non-toxic lifestyle and started to grow his own uh, vegetables because uh, he can eat right out of his garden and He's living, and I, I think he doesn't have cirrhosis of the living anymore. Uh, but anyway, uh, the next audio we're going to play is by a guy named Curtis Wall Street Carroll. And um, before we play him, we're going to go to the phone lines. But Curtis Wall Street Carroll uh, is in prison. But when he went into prison, he did not know how to read or write, and he was financially illiterate. And now he's he's written a book and he teaches a, a course on financial literacy and he teaches people in prison as well as out of prison about the stock market and how to become financially literate and do well for yourself. Uh let's go to before we go to him, four oh seven, your mic is open. Good morning, L.A. You know, I was listening to what he said about to serve is life. And um, I think what I hear from him is that he's serving from a heart of love, not just for himself, but for other people. And to me, um, being in the holistic health field and soul purpose healing, I'm, I'm learning to simplify a lot of the things I used to do. And one of them is to just choose like he said, to serve with love out of a love for self, number one, because it was a change of mind that helped him heal himself. He changed his mind about how to treat himself, in my opinion. You start juicing, that's a change of mind. I'm not going to destroy my body with all this junk food, but I'm going to choose to put healthier things in my mind and by, and then to serve with love. I love serving you. I, I really get uh, a thrill out of it. And then he's taking care of his body. He's right. That's the perfect uh, equation for life is serving yourself first with love and then serving others with love. So I just wanted to make that comment. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, you have a program where you talk about health matters, well, probably almost every week. Sole Purpose Healing, could you give us the time and number for people to tune into that? Uh, this Sunday, every Sunday, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, is Soul Purpose Healing. And I have a special guest who's going to talk about her spiritual journey with homeopathy. If you don't know what homeopathy is, tune in, and she's going to tell us all. She runs a center in Nashville, of all places, where she treats patients with homeopathy, and it's a spiritual journey for her. So Sunday, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the number is 215 
I was 14 years old inside of a bowling alley, burglarizing an arcade game. And upon exiting the building, a security guard grabbed my arm, so I ran. I ran down the street, and I jumped on top of a fence. And when I got to the top, the weight of 3,000 quarters in my book bag pulled me back down to the ground. So when I came to, the security guard was standing over top of me, and he said, next time, you little punk, steal something you can carry. <laughs> I was taking a juvenile hall. And when I was released into the custody of my mother, the first words my uncle said was, how'd you get caught? I said, man, the book bag was too heavy. He said, man, you weren't supposed to take all the quarters. I said, man, they were small. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and 10 minutes later, he took me to burglarize another arcade game. We needed gas money to get home. That was my life. I grew up in Oakland, California, with my mother and members of my immediate family addicted to crack cocaine. My environment consisted of living with family, friends, and homeless shelters. Oftentimes, dinner was served in bread lines and soup kitchens. The big homie told me this, money rules the world and everything in it. And in these streets, money is king. And if you follow the money, it'll lead you to the bad guy or the good guy. Soon after, I committed my first crime. And it was the first time that I was told that I had potential and felt like somebody believed in me. Nobody ever told me that I could be a lawyer, doctor, or engineer. I mean, how was I supposed to do that? I couldn't read, write, or spell. I was illiterate. So I always thought crime was my way to go. And then one day, I was talking to somebody, and he was telling me about this robbery that we can do. And we did it. The reality was, was that I was growing up in the strongest financial nation in the world, the United States of America, while I watched my mother stand in line at a blood bank to sell her blood for $40 just to try to feed her kids. She still had the needle marks on her arms to this day to show for that. So I never cared about my community. They didn't care about my life. Everybody there was doing what they was doing to take what they wanted. The drug dealers, the robbers, the blood bank. Everybody was taking blood money. So I got mine by any means necessary. I got mine. Financial literacy really did rule the world. And I was a child slave to it, following the bad guy. At 17 years old, I was arrested for robbery murder. And I soon learned that finances in prison ruled more than they did on the streets. So I wanted in. One day, I rushed to grab the sports page of the newspaper so my cellie can read it to me. And I accidentally picked up the business section. And this old man said, hey, youngster, you pick stocks? And I said, what's that? He said, that's the place where white folks keep all their money. <laughs> and it was the first time that I had saw a glimpse of hope, a future. He gave me this brief description of what stocks were, but it was just a glimpse. I mean, how was I supposed to do it? I couldn't read, write, or spell. The skills that I had developed to hide my illiteracy no longer worked in this environment. I was trapped in a cage, prey among predators, fighting for freedom I never had. I was lost, tired, and I was out of options. So at 20 years old, I did the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I picked up a book. And it was the most agonizing time of my life trying to learn how to read, the ostracizing from my family, the homies. It was rough, man. It was a struggle. But little did I know, 
I was receiving the greatest gifts I'd ever dreamed of. Self-worth, knowledge, discipline. I was so excited to be reading that I read everything I can get my hands on. Candy wrappers, clothing logos, street signs, everything. I was just reading stuff. Just reading stuff. I was so excited to know how to read and know how to spell. The homie came up and said, man, what you eating? I said, C-A-N-D-Y, candy. <laughs> he said, let me get some. I said, N-O, no. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, I can actually now, for the first time in my life, read. The feeling that I got from it was amazing. And then at 22, feeling myself, feeling confident, I remember what the OG told me. So, I picked up the business section of the newspaper. I wanted to find these rich white folks. <laughs> so, I looked for that glimpse. As I further my career in teaching others how to financially manage money and invest, I soon learned that I had to take responsibility for my own actions. True, I grew up in a very complex environment, but I chose to commit crimes, and I had to own up to that. I had to take responsibility for that, and I did. I was building a curriculum that could teach incarcerated men how to manage money through prison employment. Properly managing our lifestyle will provide transferable tools that we can use to manage money when we re-enter society, like the majority of people did who didn't commit crimes. Then I discovered that according to MarketWatch, over 60% of the American population has under $1,000 in savings. Sports Illustrated said that over 60% of NBA players and NFL players go broke. 40% of marital problems derive from financial issues. What the hell? <laughs> you mean to tell me that people work their whole lives buying cars, clothes, homes, and material stuff, but we're living check to check? How in the world were members of society going to help incarcerated individuals back into society if they couldn't manage their own stuff? We screwed. I needed a better plan. This is not going to work out too well. So I thought I now had an obligation to meet those on the path and help. And it was crazy because I now cared about my community. Wow, imagine that. I cared about my community. Financial illiteracy is a disease that has crippled minorities in the lower class in our society for generations and generations. And we should be furious about that. Ask yourself this. How can 50% of the American population be financially illiterate in a nation driven by financial prosperity? Our access to justice, our social status, living conditions, transportation, and food are all dependent on money that most people can't manage. It's crazy. It's an epidemic and a bigger danger to public safety than any other issue. According to the California Department of Corrections, over 70% of those incarcerated have committed or have been charged with money-related crimes, robberies, burglaries, fraud, larceny, extortion. And the list goes on. Check this out. A typical incarcerated person would enter the California prison system with no financial education, earn 30 cents an hour, over $800 a year, with no real expenses, and save no money. Upon his parole, he will be given $200 gate money and told, hey, good luck, stay out of trouble, don't come back to prison. 
with no meaningful preparation or long-term financial plan, what does he do? At 60, get a good job or go back to the very criminal behavior that led him to prison in the first place. You taxpayers, you choose. Well, his education already chose for him probably. So how do we cure this disease? I co-founded a program that we call Financial Empowerment Emotional Literacy. We call it FEEL. And it teaches how do you separate your emotional decisions from your financial decisions. And the four timeless rules to personal finance, the proper way to save, control your cost of living, borrow money effectively, and diversify your finances by allowing your money to work for you instead of you working for it. Incarcerated people need these life skills before we re-enter society. You can't have full rehabilitation without these life skills. This idea that only professionals can invest and manage money is absolutely ridiculous. And whoever told you that is lying. A professional is a person who knows his craft better than most. And nobody knows how much money you need, have, or want better than you, which means you are the professional. Financial literacy is not a skill, ladies and gentlemen. It's a lifestyle. Financial stability is a byproduct of a proper lifestyle. A financially sound incarcerated person can become a taxpayer citizen. And a financially sound taxpayer citizen can remain one. This allows us to create a bridge between those people who we influence, family, friends, and those young people who still believe that crime and money are related. So let's lose the fear and anxiety for all the big financial words and all that other nonsense that you've been out there hearing. And let's get to the heart of what's been crippling our society from taking care of your responsibility to be better life managers. And let's provide a simple and easy to use curriculum that gets to the heart, the heart of what financial empowerment and emotional literacy really is. Now, if you're sitting out here in the audience and you said, oh, yeah, well, that ain't me and I don't buy it, then come take my class <laughs> so I can show you how much money it costs you every time you get emotional. Thank you, John. Thank you. All right, that was Curtis Wall Street. Um, Curtis Wall Street Carroll, uh, who went to prison, still in prison, actually, um, for committing, a, I think, a murder and uh, didn't know how to read or write and learn how to read and write and became financial literate. So now, with although he's still incarcerated, he teaches people uh, on how they can become, how they can become financially literate and play the stock market and things of that nature. There is a movie that I would like everyone to see this weekend or as soon as possible. Um, and no, it's not uh, Black Panther. I think it's probably, I haven't seen Black Panther yet myself, but um, it's a real good movie based on a true story, and it's titled The First Grader. The First Grader. That's the name of the movie. And I'm going to read a little bit about it right now. Um, 
The first grader is a 2010 biographical um, drama film. Um, the film is based on the true story of uh, Kamani uh, Marug, uh, Marugi, a Kenyan farmer who enrolled in elementary school at the age of 84. Can you imagine that? Enrolling in school at the eight, first grade. But they're talking about getting his GED or, or graduating from college or enrolling in college. At 84, guy enrolled in first grade. Anyway, he enrolled in elementary school at age 84 following a Kenyan government's announcement of free universal primary education in 2003. And he met some resistance at first. You know, some of the people, um, um, not the kids, obviously, but uh, one of the minor, minor bureaucrats, or whatever crap he was, didn't want him to enroll. You know, he just tried to pigeonhole it to, like, small kids. Anyway, uh, let me read the plot quickly. In 2000, and it's not a, it's not a uh, what do you call those things? Um, it's not a spoiler alert. I'm just reading the plot. In, two, in 2003, a, Ken, uh, a disc jockey announces over Kenyan radio, uh, over a Kenyan radio station, that the government is offering free primary education to all. Because in Africa, most people, have, most primary kids have to pay for education. Anyway, um, is offering uh, free primary school education to all natives who can prove citizenship with a birth certificate. Uh, Kamani. Um, Marugi, uh, an 84-year-old villager, hears, uh, hears this, and he decides to take it upon himself to seek an education. Arriving at his local school, he meets Jane, um, a principal and teacher. He expresses his desire to learn how to read. He is a, a god man, 84 years old, didn't know how to read. But at 84, he wants to learn how to read. Um, her, t- uh, her teaching colleague ridicules him. Can you imagine a small mind of this? this uh, I, I don't want to even say that word. Uh, an educator, alleged educator, ridicules him and demands that he leave. Later, Jane informs her husband, Charles, about Marugi, encourages her, oh, man, come on, all this negative stuff from black dudes. Uh, he, he discourages her from the supporting uh, his educational endeavor. After beginning his initial care, uh, classes, Marugi is plagued by uh, memories of his service uh, to the Mau Mau uprising against the British in the 1950s. He begins to hallucinate and, be, and becomes confrontational with the students struggling to continue his academics. Controversy begins to steal over Marugi's uh, education soon enough. Uh, the story that an elderly man going to school becomes national headlines. It's it's a good story. Matter of fact, I think I'm gonna do. I'm gonna watch it again this weekend. Um, and matter of fact, I, you know what? I'm gonna look up the book. Matter of fact, let me go to Amazon. I oh, know not Amazon. Um, what do you call it? Yeah, Amazon Kindle, and let me see the book. Uh, 
let's see, the first word, because I haven't read the book. Because uh, I love true stories like this. Uh, the first word, part of the tapping. Okay, the first word, uh, and that might not be the name of it, but that's the name of the movie, though. I hold it still, man. Uh, you know, by Monday I'll have it. Okay, anyway, but the name of the film, which you can check out on YouTube, uh, you know, movies or Amazon, The First Raider. It is a true, uh, the more of a movie is based on a true story. Okay. Um, and matter of fact, you know what, on Monday, we might even, our podcast might be based on um, on this story. In any event, uh, that's it for today. Everyone have a good rest of the weekend.